Welcome to the Citizens Youth Sermon Podcast. We are a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church and a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit nwgospel.com slash citizens. How's it going, citizens? It's good to be here with you guys. Um, like Noah said, my name is Max. Um, I get the privilege of serving as the associate pastor over at the Camas Washougal campus. And so just like, you know, 10 or 12 minutes down the road there. Um, and yeah, it is super good to be back. I had the, the wonderful privilege of getting to, to lead music here at Citizens. Um, putting together bands, getting to serve with quite a few of you um, from early, I think like 2015 maybe, until the end of 2021. And so it's, it's super fun to come back. And honestly, you guys, like it's just a joy to hear you singing about Jesus, singing about who he is, what he's done. That is a privilege. Um, and so super good to be with you. Um, yeah, we're going to be in Hebrews 9 tonight. So continuing through this, this series that we're in, going through the book of Hebrews. And I know that you're wondering, um, for me, I'm a relatively uh, kind of paranoid person. So it's like one seagull, you know, like if, for me, it's like if there's one seagull in my house, I'm like, someone did this. Um, and so let's just get that out of the way right now. Um, but yeah, so yeah, we're in Hebrews 9. Um, let me pray for us really fast as we, as we dive into God's word and then we're going we're gonna to get into it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for, for who you are, um, for the things that you have done. God, I thank you so much for, um, for the fact that we get to be here all together um, this evening. Um, we get to dive into your word. We get to sing songs um, that are just so rich in what they talk about, the, the work of Jesus, the things that Jesus has done for us, um, the plan that you have authored, God, the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. God, we thank you for those, those realities. And now as we, as we turn our attention to Hebrews 9, God, I ask that you would help each and every one of us um, to have open hearts, open minds. Um, God, would your Holy Spirit be, be working in our hearts and giving us eyes to see, giving us minds that can understand, giving us ears that can actually hear the truth of this passage. May we not get lost in some of the, the nuances and some of the, the nitty-gritty details that are here. But God, ultimately, would, would the message that you have inspired through the author of Hebrews, the message that you have preserved through 2,000 years of church history, the message that's going to be delivered tonight, would those be your words, your truth? Um, would nothing that I do or say get in the way of that? Um, and ultimately, God, would all of this be to, um, to your glory, to your honor, to the praise of your name? We love you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What would you prefer, the original or a copy of the original? Would you prefer to listen to your, you know, your favorite song? Think of that song that's like, that's the one. That's the song I'm listening to on repeat all summer long. Would you want to listen to that song or do you want to listen to an iPhone recording of that song being played across the room? You know, do you want that new pair of Nikes that you've been eyeing? Maybe you're one of those weird people that's like real into shoes. Um, I don't get you, but Jesus loves you, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, you know, would you, do you want that new pair of, what are the, you know, running shoes or just cool-looking shoes or whatever? Or do you want, you know, Target's best attempt at those shoes? Do you want Dr. Pepper 
or do you want Dr. Shasta? The kid who just said Dr. Shasta is nasty. He's gross. Uh, No, here's the thing. The reason that we can even kind of think of those things, you know, the reason that we even, when when there's a remake of a movie, let's say, you know, it's because there was an original. That's why the copy exists. And ultimately, we have to understand the original is what is important. The original is what sets the foundation, sets the stage for whatever the copy is going to try and do or look like or be. And let's be honest, the original is usually better. And so as we're diving into Hebrews 9, we're going to see, we kind of had the door cracked open a little bit last week as Will preached um, in Hebrews 8, but what we're going to see is that there is, a, there is an important original and a copy that we see in Scripture. And so just a little bit of context as, we've, uh, as you guys have been in the book of Hebrews, you know, we've been seeing this message just over and over again. Jesus is higher than this. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Last week we saw this, this idea of the, the new covenant, you know, this new agreement between God and his people that the author of Hebrews started to unpack a little bit. And he, he called, um, he, he referenced it in Hebrews 8. Um, he called it, a, there was a, a shadow of the heavenly things. And so as we dive into Hebrews 9, what we're going to see um, is that the author of Hebrews is now kind of diving right into this shadow of the heavenly things. What we're going to see to kind of prepare ourselves for this as we jump into it, we're going to see um, that he's going to start talking about the sacrificial system. He's going to talk about this, this system of, of worship and sacrifices that marked the people of Israel. It was actually commanded that they do this by God. And so the author of Hebrews is now going to dive into this practice that for us, you know, thousands and thousands of years later, it seems kind of weird. But we're going to see an important message from this. And one of the things that lays the foundation for this passage is the reality of sin. We're going to talk about sin a lot tonight. And it's an important topic. It's something that genuinely has eternal, never-ending consequences. Where we as people, as individuals, where we land on the issue of sin. But what's so interesting is that the story of the Bible reveals that although sin, the presence of sin, which we saw in, you know, right there in the third chapter of all of the Bible, Genesis 3, we see sin introduced into the world and it completely separates humanity from the good and gracious and loving God that created humanity. But again, the story of the Bible reveals that God himself, the one who was sinned against, the one who was rebelled against, the one who created this good and perfect world and basically had his creation spit at his face. It's God who is creating a way for his people to come back to him, for his people to be reconciled back to him. So let's get into it. Hebrews 9. If you do not have a Bible open, I would. This passage is, it gets a little nutty. So I would encourage you to have a Bible open. Um, sometimes um, when we're, we're preaching through a text, we'll read the whole thing. Um, we're not going to do that um, tonight just because of the length of the text. And so but we're going to kind of take this in, in three big chunks, three big movements. And so let's do this. Let's read uh, Hebrews 9, and we're going to read these first 10 verses. This is God's word. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. 
For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. All right, this is the first thing that we see in this passage. In these first 10 verses, the old covenant offered limited access to God. The old covenant offered limited access to God. I have a, a, a son, uh, my wife, Allison, and I, we have two sons. Um, Ezra is 10 months old. Noah is about to turn three. Um, and Noah, our toddler, does this just legendary thing where anytime we say something that kind of like rocks his world, you know, like blows his mind, he goes, what? And he just stares at us. You know, it's like, hey, buddy, like dad's staying home from work today and we're going to the zoo. And he's just like, what? You know? But there's also other things, you know, where it's like, hey, bud, like maybe don't eat that battery. And it's just like, what? Um, his mind's been blown. He's a little confused even, you know. And if I'm being real with you guys, and if you guys are being real, even just these first 10 verses, we're all kind of sitting there. It's like, what? What is happening here? What in the world have we gotten ourselves into? After chapter 8, the author of, of Hebrews is now, again, kind of like we said a second ago, he's, he's diving into the specifics. He opened that door into this idea of the new covenant, and now he's really diving in to, to that new covenant, to the nuances of it, to the details there. Again, remember that what the author calls the first covenant, that was that original arrangement, kind of agreement between God and his people. And that lasted, that agreement lasted from the time of Moses, who delivered the law to Israel, all the way until the time of Jesus. And he's talking specifically about this thing, the, the tabernacle. He calls it the, that a tent has been prepared. We have a little graphic that we're going to throw up here um, of the, the tabernacle. Is it there? There it is. Awesome. Sweet. And so as you see here, um, super groovy little illustration, if I do say so myself. I did not do that. And so this is the tabernacle. The, um, we hear a lot in the Old Testament. There's like the tabernacle, and then later the tabernacle became the temple. That's when they built this, this permanent um, structure um, where God dwelled among his people. But the tabernacle um, was established in Israel, um, and it was built in Israel and crafted by Israelites. As they were making their way, they had fled. God had uh, delivered them from Egypt, and they were making their way through the wilderness 
all the way to the promised land, this land that God had promised to give them where they could have a, a home and they could settle. And in the meantime, they did not have, uh, they didn't want to have a, a permanent dwelling for God because they were moving along. And so God commanded them to build this, this epic, epic tent. You know, this is no REI tent that like doesn't fit back in the bag after you open it for the first time. Um, instead, God commands them to, to craft this tent. And that is where God chose to take up residence among his people. And specifically, there are, there are two sections of this tent. The first section, what the, the author calls the, the holy place, what's understood as the holy place, this is where the Israel's priests, the Levites, just kind of did their thing. Incense was burned, you know, animals are getting sacrificed, there's bread being made, and a ton of other super weird stuff. Dig into, dig in, dig into the book of Leviticus, and again, what? Um, you'll have your mind blown. And so all these things are happening, and again, that first section is where um, God's priests, the, Israel, the Levites, were, were just kind of doing their, uh, their rituals, the rites, the, the practices that they needed to do as the priests. And then the second section, the most holy place, that is where God's presence dwelled. And the author of Hebrews gives a whole list in each of these sections of, of the different things. But we're also going to take a cue from the author here. Because again, for the original audience, this is written to, to Jews that have become Christians in the first century. As they're reading this, they're kind of like, oh, dude, we got this. We're familiar with our Old Testament. And so, but we're also going to take a cue from the author of Hebrews here. Um, of these things, he says at the end of, chapter, of uh, verse 5, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And so suffice it to say, it's enough to say, that there's this tabernacle tent. So we're all good. Thank you for that graphic. Um, and so here's the thing that we have to understand. As, as the author of Hebrews is, is unpacking these, these two sections, he's reminding the people of, of this tent where God dwells. What he's highlighting here, and we see it there in verse 8, he's highlighting this. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Basically, he's saying that while the tabernacle and later the temple, while that system of, of worship and sacrifice for the people of Israel, while that was a thing, the way to God was not open. The way to God was not open. There were things that needed to be done in order for that to open up. Because it seems like a solid setup, but here's the thing. There's an issue. And we've already mentioned it this evening. The issue is sin. You see all of these different uh, vessels and pieces of furniture, all these different things that were included in, in the tabernacle, they needed to be constantly purified because of the sin of the people of Israel. They needed to be purified because they needed to meet the standards of a, a perfectly holy, perfectly loving, perfectly just God. A perfect God. So these things need to be constantly purified because it is through. You'll notice that language all throughout our text. It is through the way to God. It's through the tabernacle. And the reason for that way is because God wants his people to be with him and he wants to be with his people. But again, that path is constantly blocked by sin. A lot of us have questions about the sacrificial system, you know. Anytime we read the Old Testament, we're like, why are they killing so many animals? Like, what is going on here? 
And we don't just sidestep that as Christians. You know, we're not just like, oh, well, we're kind of like more in the New Testament. It's like, no, friends, the Old Testament and the New, the 66 books of the Bible, that is God's word to his people. Whether they were first century Christians who knew the apostles, who knew Peter and James and John, maybe even knew Jesus. And for us as well, as Christians living 2,000 years later, so we have to understand the sacrificial system. And it's honestly pretty basic. Here's, the, here's kind of the rub of it. Death is the penalty for sin. Sin is doing anything that God prohibits, and it is not doing anything that God commands. And God says very clearly from, from the very beginning as he creates humanity that if they are going to rebel against him, if they're going to sin against him, The penalty of that is death. It is nothing less than death. And so God in his graciousness, in his love for his people, these special creatures who he created in his own image, God provided a way for them to be able to commune with him, have a relationship with him, have access to him. It was limited access through the tabernacle, but that was something that God did. The the whole sacrificial system is actually, it's a grace of God. It is something that God set up so that his people could be with him because he is the best possible thing for his people. One illustration um, that I think is kind of helpful for this is most of you, if your homes are anything like mine, there's like a, there's some spot in your house that it might take a few minutes, it might take a few days, um, it never takes more than a few days though, it just gets blocked. Like there are backpacks, there are shoes, there's like someone's leftovers have just been like slid under a bench. You know, it's, it gets nasty real quick. And your mom's, probably, your mom's probably on you for it quite a bit. That is not unlike what the tabernacle was. It was this very, very necessary, very, very uh, trafficked path from the people of Israel to get to their God. But it was constantly being blocked. It was constantly being blocked by their sin. Their sin that means that they cannot be near a holy God because they have fallen short of a holy God. And so the sacrificial system really was it, was, it was this effort of purifying, of cleaning that path up so that there could be access to God. But the problem is, is that all of this cleaning being done, all the sacrifices being made, all the purification in the words of our text, it wasn't actually changing the root problem. It wasn't changing the fact that the Israelites spiritually were walking right in the door and immediately taking their jacket off, taking their backpack off, kicking their shoes off and just throwing it right in the way. We all have a problem, friends. As human beings, Christian or non-Christian, we have a problem, and that problem is sin. One uh, really popular, really solid author, Paul David Tripp, um, kind of breaks down the category of sin into, into three pieces, three elements. And so the first is iniquity. All of us are born as broken human beings. We are born impure before God. We do not measure up to God. His standard is perfection, not our version of perfection. It is perfection itself. It is holiness he is completely other. And so that first, that first element of sin, iniquity, we, we're dirty. Our sin causes us to be dirty. The second is transgression. Those are the actual sins that we commit. Those are those acts of rebellion, however small they might be or however massive they might be. 
we transgress, we, we rebel against God. And then lastly, um, there's just like the, the idea very literally of sin. Sin is, if you take that word very literally, it's not measuring up. So again, if God really is perfect, and we really are who we are, we do not measure up to him. All people suffer from this. And everywhere we look, we see this. But especially, students, in your own lives. In your own hearts, if you're, a, if you're thinking about sin through the lens of what Scripture says about it, through the lens of what God says about it, you know you do not measure up. You struggle and you are anxious and you don't practice patience and you are jealous and all of these little things and you know, man, something, if perfection, complete perfection, if that's the bar, I am not there, friends. We are in desperate need of repair. You know, the text talks about the time of reformation. That's what we need. We don't just need a couple, like, good behavior adjustments. We don't just need in the hallway to keep picking up our shoes, to keep picking up our jacket. We need to be reformed. That is the, that is the issue with sin. We need reformation. We need to be reshaped and remolded. We need to actually be transformed. And here's the reality. The sacrificial system of Israel it says there in the text, it cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It cannot actually transform people. It can continue to, to swipe things out of the hallway to make God accessible once again, but inevitably, that path is going to be dirtied up again. It's going to be inaccessible again. So no matter who you are, you need to recognize the, the reality of sin. The reality of sin in our world, yes, but importantly, the reality of sin in your own life. Our culture, the world around us is kind of constantly going on about like, oh, here the Christians go banging the drum of sin again. And here's just a warning that I would give you, citizens. There is a real danger in thinking that being good enough is actually good enough. Because that's the thing that we are constantly telling ourselves, and that's the thing that our world is constantly telling us. And here's, oh man, here's the issue. Our world genuinely thinks that being good enough, just trying your hardest, just doing your best, just using a planner, just doing these little things, just following your parents' instructions, our world actually thinks that that makes us good enough to stand before a perfectly holy God. We have it so backwards in our sin and in our world. I mean, it's like if your friend invited you to go to like, I don't know, like a concert or a movie, and they were like, it is $5, bring $5. And you get to that movie, and the person in the booth is like, it is $500 million. You don't just like turn to them and you're like, actually, it's five. Like my buddy Scott told me so. No. You look at the one who's giving you false information, you're like, what in the world are you doing, man? And so again, what we're seeing here in these first couple of verses, it's heavy stuff. I understand that. But it's heavy for a reason. It's heavy because sin is what separates us from God. And again, the sacrificial system, it is only treating the symptoms. It's not actually treating the sickness. 
And I don't know what kind of mood you're in tonight on a Wednesday night. I mean, it's getting pretty late in the year. A lot of you are ready for summer. A lot of you are feeling it. But if we were just to take a second and consider the, the weight of sin, not just the sin around us, not just like, oh, so-and-so sin, or oh, that thing that this guy said, but when we really consider the, the weight of sin in our own lives, something's got to change. And our text addresses this. So let's read these next couple of verses. Verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption." For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here's the second thing we see in this passage. The death of Christ provides a better way to God. The death of Christ provides a better way to God. Christ has done, Jesus has done what the first covenant couldn't do, what the sacrificial system could not do. Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for sinners. Jesus never sinned. Jesus lived a, a perfectly upright and righteous life. He was, he was perfect before God and before man, and yet he went willingly to the cross. And he suffered in the place of sinners. He suffered a brutal, brutal death when he is the only human being in all of history who did not deserve to suffer death. And then, after suffering in our place, suffering in the place of sinners... He didn't offer himself in the shadow of the heavenly things. He went to the heavenly places, not a copy, but the original. Fully God and fully man, he did this work for us. And then, to top it all off, after doing that work of, of atonement, of, of dealing with sin, Jesus mind, body, and spirit, was raised from the dead. And that was a proclamation to all people everywhere, over all creation, that he now holds the power that sin and death once held over the world. He has claimed victory over this sickness, this disease that has separated humanity from God. He is now in charge. Verse 12, by means of his own blood. What has he done? Look at the end of verse 12. He has secured an eternal redemption. Christ himself is our way to God now. 
It's not through the sacrificial system. It's not through the temple. It's not through the tabernacle. It's not through this section of a tent or that section. It is through Christ that we have access to God. Jesus is so much better than the tabernacle or the sacrificial system. And he says himself in John 14, 6, he answers someone and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the author of Hebrews is leaning into this idea in verses 13 and 14 when he's essentially saying, if the blood of animals, all of these ritual sacrifices that happened in the Old Testament, if those were good enough to purify just our flesh, you know, to, to sweep away the clutter in the hallway, how much more so, how much more effective is the death of Jesus? God the Son, God in flesh, how much more effective is that to actually transform us. It's here that we get the, the main idea of this, of this whole passage. Christ's death offers real access to God. Christ's death offers real access to God. And these verses, what we've read so far, friends, this this affects us today. This has real implications for us. If you are not a Christian, if you do not have a, a saving relationship with Jesus, if you have not turned from your sin and turned to Jesus in faith, knowing and trusting and believing that he will forgive you, that he is the only one who could forgive you of your sins, this is what you need. You need this eternal redemption. You need to recognize the burden of sin and realize that the God of all creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have worked in perfect collaboration to make it to where you can have access to God. You can have forgiveness of sin. When God looks at you, he sees someone who is guilty of sin and who deserves his wrath because you have not measured up. You have transgressed. You are impure before him. But students, in Christ, when God looks at us, our faith, the scripture says, our faith is what unites us with Christ. And so God doesn't just do the lazy thing of just sweeping things under the rug. He doesn't just pretend our sin never happened. No, instead, he, when he looks at a Christian who has been united by faith with Christ, he sees a son, he sees a daughter, he sees a child who he is glad in. He sees the very righteousness of Jesus. And for Christians, you'll notice there in verse 14. Christ's death has, it purifies our conscience from what? From dead works to serve the living God. The Christian life, um, how I kind of like to think about it as I was going over this text and over and over again. The Christian life, when we, when we come into that relationship with Jesus, when we, through Jesus, have righteousness and access to God, it comes with new life, and it comes with a new syllabus. I know it's like a dirty word in here, you know, with like a bunch of students. I'm in school right now, too, and there is. Syllabus shock is so real, where you're like, how are we going to get this much done in like 12 weeks or 16? We're like, whatever, like, oh, no, we're doomed. But here's the thing, though. What is a syllabus? It is, it is laying out the, the requirements for a course of study. It's laying out the, the necessary reading, the things that you're going to need, the things, the best practices. 
It's going to give you deadlines and all these different things. And friends, we have that in Scripture. Not because God is some domineering school teacher that just likes to watch students suffer, but because he wants us to have what we need. We are being saved from something, the dead works of the first covenant, the works that cannot revive us, can't regenerate us, can't give us new life. We're being saved from that, and we're being saved to service of the living God. And our text continues. Let's read these, these last couple of verses, 15 through the end of the chapter. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every covenant or every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he, that's Jesus, Jesus would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the, the third thing that we see in this passage. The new covenant promises access to God. New Covenant promises access to God. We ask ourselves as we're, as we're working through this text, why would Christ do this? Like, what's the actual reason? And it says there in verse 15, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Because of God's love and mercy, he has made a way to himself. Without compromising who he is because God cannot be in relationship with, he cannot be connected with or united with sin because he is perfectly holy. God, without compromising himself and his promise to punish sin, he has figured out a way, he has authored a way for us to have him and have him forever. 
this language is even confirmed um, there in, uh, it kind of, it's weird how it shifts all of a sudden in verse 16 through, what is it? Yeah, verse 17. It all of a sudden starts using this language of a will, you know, like a last will and testament, something maybe like, like a relative that's passed away would they have left their will. It's what they want done. What's interesting is in the original languages, students, will and covenant in this text are the exact same word. But the author is taking advantage of kind of the, the, the different meanings that that word covenant can have. And they're leaning into the fact that this is the, the will of God. This was the desire of Christ. This is why Christ did this. It is so that those who are called Christians, those who have been united with Christ in faith, they can receive that, that promised eternal inheritance. Both the Old and the New Covenants, this text says, were, were inaugurated with blood. That was, the, that was kind of the starting line for these covenants, for these agreements between God and humanity. Moses, it says, you know, kind of took this weird mixture of blood and a bunch of other symbolic elements, and he, he sprinkled the people, he sprinkled the book, he sprinkled the tent, you know, the tabernacle and all the things inside of it. And Jesus, in much the same way, his body was broken, his blood was poured out for his people as the establishment of this new covenant. If you recognize the language there, this is what we remember when we celebrate communion. When we take the cup, when we take the bread, and we remember what Christ has done, we are remembering the fact that he has established a new covenant between us and God. Not a covenant of works where we just keep doing and doing and doing and doing to cleanse and cleanse and cleanse, but a new covenant where God himself has dealt with our sin. Christ's death offers real access to God. And now Christ, our mediator, the one who's now the go-between between us and God, through him we have access to God the Father. The road is open and clear, friends, in Jesus. He didn't enter a copy. He entered the original. He entered the very presence of God because he was worthy to enter the very presence of God. And he offered himself as the sacrifice that we needed as sinful human beings. And he doesn't need to be continually sacrificed, the text says, once for all. You can think of the words of Jesus on the cross. He says, as he gave up his spirit, as he submitted to death, he said, it is finished. His work is finished. The work of accomplishing redemption for sinners, it is done. So again, students, your only hope for the forgiveness of your sins, your only hope to step out from under that burden of God's wrath, of, of sin, it's Jesus. It is Jesus Christ. It is the perfect life that he lived. It is the death that he endured. And it is the glorious resurrection that signals to everyone and everything in the whole world that he is exactly who he says he is. And he has accomplished exactly what he said he would accomplish. And for Christians, we're reminded from even just these last couple of verses, we're reminded of, of what Paul says when he writes to Titus at the end of chapter 2. 
He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The text throws that in there at the end. When Jesus comes back, friends, which we can be sure, he is going to come back. It is not going to be to deal with sin because that has been finished. That work is done. It is going to be to come back and to bring his people, those who are still alive and those who over the years of church history have passed away, and he is going to lead his people into paradise, into heaven, into eternal communion with God, because that is the inheritance that we have to look forward to. That is that promised eternal inheritance. God says over and over again through the Old Testament, I will be with them, they will be my people, and I will be their God. That has been the goal since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and separated God and humanity. And Christ's death offers real, real access to God. And so put your faith in him and be saved. Experience new life in Christ and worship and serve the living God with every part of your life. Christ's death has fully and finally done what the old covenant could only partially and temporarily do. And it is because of Jesus that you can live as one who has been saved by grace, a sinner saved by God's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you show us in while we were sinners. You sent your perfect son to die in our place. God, we thank you that as we read and engage with the Old Testament, we don't see something that's to be tossed out or forgotten. But God, as we read the Old Testament, we see it groaning for Christ. We see all the history of Israel looking forward to the, the person and work of Jesus. And God, then we read in the New Testament, we see the work of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you would be so willing as to step off of your throne and to, to live a life in this broken world to die in our place, to take on the punishment for sin that we have deserved, each one of us has earned. Jesus, you took that on yourself. And you now declare to each and every one of us that we are free. If we are united with you in faith, we are declared righteous. We are declared co-heirs with you. Holy Spirit, would you help the truths of this passage to not get lost? in anything outside of us or inside of us that could cause us to be confused or frustrated. Spirit, would the, the gospel of Jesus through this passage, as we consider it more and more this evening, would it root down deep into our hearts? And God, would you, through this, would you change us? Would you transform us? Would you shape us into more faithful disciples of Jesus by your power? 
Would you cause us to see our sin and want to turn from it, to repent, to seek forgiveness because we know that that forgiveness is offered by Jesus Christ. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are, the things that you have revealed to us in your word. And we pray now that you would transform us and make us look more and more like your son, Jesus. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.